The population of Circleville, Ohio hovers around 14,000 people. If you were to pepper its residents around the island of Manhattan, they wouldn't be enough to fill 0.01% of the apartments. And that's if they each got their own. Every October, the town hosts the Circleville Pumpkin Show. It's the biggest event of the year. 80-year-old Bob Liggett and his wife Joe recently took home first prize for the 13th time with a pumpkin weighing 1,400 pounds. Which is to say, Circleville, Ohio is exactly what you might expect, a bit of wholesome Midwestern Americana. But at night, everyone locks their doors. Because four decades ago, mysterious anonymous letters began arriving in residents' mailboxes. All were of a similar nature. One of the first was addressed to local school bus driver Mary Gillespie. It read, I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first and only episode on the Circleville Letters. For almost two decades, thousands of threatening letters plagued the small town of Circleville, Ohio. This episode, we're exploring everything we know about the 18-year-long terror campaign. From unsolved murders to illicit affairs, the curious case of the Circleville Letters still fascinates and confuses anyone who dares tug at its loose threads. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In December 1976, 
33-year-old Mary Gillespie worked as a bus driver for the Westfall Local School District in Pickaway County, Ohio. She lived in one of the county's 15 townships, Circleville. One evening after completing her bus route, Mary opened her mailbox to find a small white envelope with her name on it. It was postmarked in Columbus, Ohio, a short 30-minute drive to the Northeast. But the note didn't have a return address. The letter's author had gone to great lengths to keep their identity secret. They had carefully written the message in capitalized block letters. In the same handwriting, they signed it with a pseudonym, the Circleville Writer. The anonymous author told Mary that they'd been secretly watching her. From the shadows, they'd learned three critical pieces of information, where she lived, who her children were, and that she was having an affair. The man they accused Mary of having an extramarital relationship with was her employer, the West Falls School Superintendent, Gordon Massey. The letter ended with the words, quote, everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. But the game of psychological warfare was just beginning. Unbeknownst to Mary, other residents of Circleville started receiving similar notes, each one postmarked in Columbus without a return address. The Circleville writer knew intimate details about each of their lives. Many letters contained threats. Others tried to blackmail the recipients. Some included graphic descriptions of sex acts. A number contained all of the above. Before long, the small town was brimming with rumors, gossip, and paranoia. Mary noticed that she wasn't the only one with a pen pal. And the Circleville writer could be anywhere or anyone. The clerk at the supermarket, the teller at the bank. Even a neighbor. The ones who, with a pair of binoculars, could see straight into a home if the blinds weren't drawn. And Mary Gillespie seemed to be at the center of it all. For whatever reason, more than anyone, the Circleville writer fixated on her. Allegedly, the phantom author mentioned Mary's illicit affair in a number of other letters around town. But despite everything, Mary kept that first letter secret from her family. She later claimed it was because she didn't want to give credence to its lies. Mary believed she had no reason to defend herself to anyone, including her husband, Ron. But with more and more letters arriving around town, Mary must have lived in constant fear of her husband finding out about the letters and what would happen if he believed the accusations. But incredibly, he didn't, even when a second letter arrived a week later. Mary rifled through a stack of bills and found another small envelope with her name on it, penned in familiar black lettering. Her heart raced as she read its message. Stay away from him noon as well as night. Too many think this is a joke. We'll see in time. The author once again referred to her alleged affair with her employer. Whether or not Mary thought she was being pranked, she remained silent. She kept the letter from her husband and children. For Mary, checking the mail became a race against her family. When a third letter arrived, she was glad she got there first. The anonymous writer escalated their demands. They wrote, Gillespie, you've had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, 
I will broadcast it on radio, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Mary still chose to ignore the threats. So the Circleville writer addressed the next letter to Ron. And Mary wasn't able to stop him from reading it. When Ron read the letter's contents, his jaw hit the floor. In scrawled, cryptic handwriting, the Circleville writer's message read, We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember, we know where you work and know your red and white truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Notify the school board immediately. Again, your life is in danger. When Ron brought the letter to Mary, she told him about the others that she had received. She insisted that the author's claims were unfounded. She had been nothing but faithful to Ron. She hid the letters for fear that he might think otherwise. Ron chose to believe his wife. Determined to not have their marriage torn apart, in the weeks to come, they formulated a plan to put an end to the torment. They called a meeting of their closest friends and relatives. Included in the group were Ron's sister Karen and her husband Paul Freshour. They brainstormed who might be behind the messages circulating around town, the real identity of the Circleville writer. They made a short list of suspects. At the top of that list was a gentleman named David Longberry. Longberry worked with Mary and had allegedly made advances towards her on a number of occasions. Once the list was complete, they wrote their own anonymous letters. Each one got straight to the point. They bluffed. They wrote to Longberry and others saying that they knew who they were and what they were up to. If the group was right about any of them, perhaps it would scare the individual enough to stop. As it turned out, they did. As spring turned to summer, the letters that had flooded Pickaway County, but especially Circleville, came to a screeching halt. For a moment, the storm of the mysterious messages appeared to have passed. Then, on August 19, 1977, Ron Gillespie received not a letter, but a phone call. To this day, nobody knows the identity of the caller or what words were exchanged. All we know is that when Ron slammed the receiver down, he was violently upset. He grabbed his pistol, told his children that he was leaving, and stormed out the door. He then got inside his red and white pickup truck and sped away. Later that night, authorities found Ron's dead body in the driver's seat of his pickup truck. The car was wrapped around a tree not far from his home. His gun was within reach. Before he died, Ron had apparently pulled its trigger and taken one singular shot. Coming up, a Circleville resident is put behind bars. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. On August 19, 1977, police found 35-year-old Ron Gillespie dead. Sometime around 11.30 p.m., he'd lost control of his pickup truck and smashed it into a tree on the side of the road. The pistol he'd brought with him had been fired once. Officials found no hole in his truck, and neither the bullet nor its casing were ever recovered. So police had no way of knowing what or who Ron's intended target really was. The Pickaway County coroner, Dr. Ray Carroll, pronounced Ron dead at the scene. He'd suffered substantial internal injuries from the wreck. At first, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe suspected foul play. That, however, changed when Ron's toxicology report arrived. His blood alcohol content was allegedly 0.16%, roughly double the legal limit. The report was enough for Sheriff Radcliffe to rule Ron's death an accident. He closed the case. According to family and friends, however, Ron Gillespie wasn't known to drink, at least not in excess. And as it turned out, the Circleville writer agreed that there was more to Ron's death than the police let on. Letters apparently arrived accusing Sheriff Radcliffe of a cover-up. But by that time, Ron's truck had been sent to a junkyard. Any outstanding evidence had been crushed in a compactor, which only fueled the fire of a conspiracy. For the next six years, letters rained down on Pickaway County. Fear and paranoia ran rampant. Checking the mailbox was no longer a simple chore. It was panic-inducing, another part of the Circleville writer's twisted game. But a lot changed in the six years after Ron's death. Karen and Paul Freshour once sat with Mary and Ron, brainstorming the identity of the Circleville writer. But by 1983, Paul had filed for a divorce. Karen had cheated on him. Paul received custody of their kids, and Karen moved into a trailer in Mary's backyard. The process was hostile, to say the least. Meanwhile, Mary Gillespie became romantically involved with her employer, Westfall Superintendent Gordon Massey, the same man she had vehemently denied having an extramarital affair with years earlier. Massey went through a messy divorce of his own to be with her. To be clear, Mary insisted that her relationship with Gordon Massey only began after Ron's death. But naturally, there were those who had their doubts, including the Circleville writer. By 1983, the unknown wordsmith's threats and hate speech had escalated. They'd moved beyond simple letters to homemade road signs. Handwritten messages appeared along Mary's Westfall bus route. In addition to threatening Mary, the author's words were directed at Mary's 12-year-old daughter as well. According to Paul Freshour, the Circleville writer once threatened to put a bullet in the little girl's head. One of the road signs even accused Mary's daughter of having a sexual relationship with Gordon Massey. In other words, 
the threats and slander really started crossing a line. On February 7, 1983, around 3.30 p.m., Mary pulled her bus over to the side of the road. She'd had enough. She could no longer sit idly by and watch her daughter fall victim to some nameless, faceless monster. Mary climbed out of the bus. She was going to tear down one of the signs before her daughter noticed. But as she ripped down the sign, she saw a string. She followed it to its source, a black box attached to a wooden post. When she opened the box, she realized the string's purpose. To pull the trigger of a gun hidden inside. If the trap had successfully worked, the contraption could have killed Mary. The Circleville Riders game was no longer just psychological. Shaking, Mary took the booby trap back to her home. A few hours later, she brought it to the police station. Authorities examined the firearm and noted that someone had haphazardly tried to remove the gun's serial number. Luckily, lab technicians were able to discern what they were. 201089. Officials then traced the serial number back to its original owner, Mary Gillespie's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. Now, some sources claim that Paul's ex-wife, Ron's sister, Karen, told Mary she had suspicions Paul might be the Circleville writer. However, it's unclear whether those suspicions were raised before or after Mary found the attempted murder weapon. Either way, with the gun's testing complete, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe asked Paul Freshour to meet him at the Pickaway County Sheriff's Station. He wanted Paul to take a handwriting test. Once alone in a room, Radcliffe placed a notepad in front of Paul and handed him a pen. He then showed him a letter from the Circleville writer and asked him to copy what he saw word for word. The sheriff wanted Paul to imitate the block lettering as best as he could. When Paul finished, Radcliffe removed the letter and handed Paul another blank sheet of paper. This time, Radcliffe dictated one of the Circleville letters and instructed Paul to write down the words in the penmanship he had just practiced. The sheriff then sent the samples to be analyzed. Immediately following the test, Sheriff Radcliffe and Paul drove to Paul's house. The sheriff asked Paul to show him where he normally kept his gun. Paul obliged. Radcliffe followed Paul into the garage where Paul informed the sheriff that the gun had been stolen. In fact, it had been missing for some time. He had no idea who took it or when. Interestingly, Sheriff Radcliffe found no ammunition or shells in the garage, which seemed to support Paul's statement that it had been missing for a while. He also found no evidence of any of the materials used to build the trap. But when they left Paul's house, they drove straight to the Pickaway County Courthouse. With only the gun and an unverified handwriting test as evidence, Radcliffe arrested Paul and held him in prison on a $50,000 cash bond. Later that year, on October 24, 1983, Paul Freshour stood trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. In total, the prosecution, led by Robert Klein, submitted 39 of the Circleville writer's letters as evidence. 
Since they contained no direct threat to Mary's life, they were used to show Paul's, quote, state of mind at the time the booby trap was found. Essentially, the prosecution wanted to prove Paul was unstable in lieu of providing any motive for murder. Mary Gillespie took the stand and testified that her sister-in-law, Karen, had shared suspicions about Paul's involvement. Why Karen suspected her ex-husband, however, was never made clear. Paul's boss at Anheuser-Busch, David Wilson, testified that Paul had requested time off from work on February 7th, the day Mary Gillespie found the booby trap. Stephen Green, the documents examiner for the Bureau of Criminal Investigation in Ohio, told the court that 39 letters submitted for evidence matched Paul Freshour's handwriting samples. Though when cross-examined, Green admitted he had not examined any of the other thousands of letters sent to Circleville residents that were not submitted for evidence. Paul's friend, Charles Spencer, took the stand to corroborate some of Paul's claims. Spencer testified that prior to February 7th, Paul had informed Spencer that his gun was stolen. Spencer had even helped Paul try and locate it. Two more friends, Michael Faulkner and Kathleen Pence, both provided alibis for Paul. Faulkner spent time with Paul on February 7th, as well as the day before. On the date in question, Paul didn't leave his home between the hours of 12.30 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. Pence saw Paul in his home between 3 and 3.30 p.m. The defense also used her as a character witness. She had known Paul for about 15 years and couldn't imagine him being responsible for the crimes. Paul didn't take the stand. Before the sunset on Pickaway County, the jury met to decide his fate. It didn't take long. Paul Freshour was convicted of attempted murder with a firearm. He received a sentence of 7 to 25 years in prison. With the Circleville writer behind bars, the residents of Circleville, Ohio, looked forward to checking the mail without fear. But the letters kept coming. Coming up, an imprisoned Paul Freshour receives a message from the Circleville writer. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Now, back to the story. In October 1983, a judge and jury convicted Paul Freshour of the attempted murder of his former sister-in-law, Mary Gillespie. A handwriting analyst matched Paul's penmanship to the 39 letters submitted for evidence. Residents of Pickaway County believed that after seven years of terror, the Circleville writer was finally behind bars. He couldn't reach them any longer. 
but the anonymous letters continued. All of them were written in block letters. All of them were postmarked in Columbus, Ohio, without a return address. One was even sent to Paul Freshour in prison. The author wrote, quote, Shame how things work out. Better you than me. The sheriff says you did it. But we know better, don't we? From prison, Paul continued to assert his innocence. He hoped the ongoing letters might somehow help his case. The prison placed Paul in solitary confinement to see if the messages would end, but they didn't. They just kept coming. Tessa Unwin, a representative from Lima Correctional Institution where Paul was being kept, said that the prison inspected all of Paul's incoming and outgoing mail. She made a statement saying, quote, I don't see any way humanly possible for him to sneak out something. Beginning in 1988, Paul made a number of appeals for parole. When they were rejected, he voluntarily submitted himself for three different polygraph tests. He passed each one while proclaiming his innocence. After one rejection, he received another anonymous letter that read, Now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? In December 1993, the television show Unsolved Mysteries allegedly received a message of their own. The letter was mailed to their office. In scrawled block letter penmanship were the words, Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, UL sickos will pay. The Circleville writer. That same year, a journalist and private investigator named Martin Yant took an interest in the Circleville letters. He covered the story for the Ohio Observer. Believing the wrong person was in prison, he then went on to author a book called Presumed Guilty, When Innocent People Are Wrongly Convicted. One day, while going over the details of the case, Yant found evidence that had been suspiciously left out. One of Mary's co-workers, a fellow bus driver, had driven past the location of the sign and booby trap shortly before Mary found it. The co-worker witnessed a man with sandy-colored hair on the side of the road. He'd pulled over his car, a yellow-orange Chevrolet El Camino. When she drove past, he pretended to relieve himself in the woods. The description of the man didn't match Paul Freshour, who had dark brown hair. Freshour didn't own an El Camino either. Mary Gillespie had relayed this information to Sheriff Radcliffe, and yet no investigation into the man's identity ever happened. And according to Martin Yant, one of the alleged suspects of the Circleville letters had a brother with the exact same style and color car. That suspect? Karen Freshour. Her boyfriend at the time matched the description of the man seen on the side of the road. Amidst these revelations, Paul Freshour's incarceration came to an end. In May 1994, after ten and a half years behind bars, he was released on parole and started a new life. After prison, he made a statement saying, they can never give back the years or money they cost me, but I still want to clear my name. 
As for the letters, for the most part, they stopped in 1994, the same year Paul was paroled, at least according to most sources. Others claim they continued on as late as 2003. An official count has never been taken, but at the time of Paul's hearing in 1983, the letters could have filled an entire mailroom, thousands, and that was a decade before they came to an end. How do we make sense of everything? It's not easy. The mystery of the Circleville letters is a complex web of deception and mistruths. Countless theories of the true identity of the Circleville writer have been proposed since 1994, the most substantial of which was made by Paul himself. After being released from prison, Paul Freshour submitted an almost 200-page document to the FBI. Paul asked them to look into the injustices perpetrated by the Pickaway County Sheriff's Department. He wanted them to look into his case, as well as Ron Gillespie's murder. But from the outside looking in, it appears that Paul cared less about his former brother-in-law's death and more about proving his own innocence. His report itself is nothing if not thorough. To summarize, Paul accuses Sheriff Radcliffe of conducting a massive cover-up. For motivation, he states, quote, the crime rate in Pickaway County at the time would have eliminated him from this appointment. Basically, Paul believed that Sheriff Radcliffe had underrepresented crime statistics in Pickaway County and mismanaged government funds. So when the real Circleville writer learned of the sheriff's misdeeds, they blackmailed Radcliffe into pinning the blame on Paul to save his career. How true are his claims? Well, some of the accusations Paul raises are pretty out there. For instance, he states that some of the Circleville letters contained arsenic. In our research, there's no evidence to support that statement. If arsenic arrived at someone's home, chances are it would have made the news. Paul also accused one of the prosecutors of his trial, Robert Klein, of impregnating a local school teacher and then having her murdered. Paul claimed that the Circleville writer had found out. To be fair, the woman he mentions, 25-year-old Vicki Koch, was a teacher and she was murdered. In fact, her case remains unsolved to this day. And on March 16, 1992, a letter was sent to police chief James R. McKean, claiming that the same person who killed Vicki Koch also killed Ron Gillespie. But we won't be going so far as to accuse Klein of brutally murdering Koch and then burying the bones of her unborn baby somewhere in the woods of Ohio, as Paul did. There just isn't enough evidence. That said, as outrageous as Paul's claims seem, there's at least truth behind some of them. Part of Paul's conspiracy involved Sheriff Radcliffe's wanting to hide evidence of a miscarriage of justice in his department. In December 1993, Dr. Ray Carroll, the coroner who pronounced Ron Gillespie dead at the scene, was charged with a number of different sex crimes, gross immorality, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. Whether or not Sheriff Radcliffe knew about Carroll's behavior is an entirely separate story. One that, like most roads in this case, arrives at a dead end. We just don't know. 
But we can say that it is suspicious that only 39 letters were submitted as evidence during Paul's trial. In fact, some believe the letters shouldn't have been permissible in court. Paul wasn't being accused of writing the letters. He was on trial for attempted murder. The argument that they somehow revealed his state of mind might be an unfair one, especially since none of them threatened Mary Gillespie's life. Not to mention, the sheriff's department could have curated the letters that most resembled Paul's handwriting samples before submitting them to the documents examiner at the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. As we mentioned, the expert hadn't been given any of the other thousands that officials allegedly had at their disposal. According to Paul, that was because many of the letters implicated the sheriff's department's many misdeeds. And it's interesting to note, the Radcliffe name is a legacy at the Pickaway Sheriff's Department. Dwight Radcliffe's father was sheriff before him. When Dwight retired, his son took his place, which might be a way of ensuring that the family's secrets stay within the family. And honestly, the way that Sheriff Radcliffe conducted Paul's handwriting sample raises a red flag. Paul should have never been shown the letters and told to copy them as closely as possible. According to handwriting experts, Paul should have been verbally instructed to write block letters in his own handwriting. Showing him the letter and telling him to imitate the author's penmanship removed any control from the test and could have set him up for failure to falsely incriminate him. Speaking of setup, we haven't discussed Paul's ex-wife, Karen. Many believe she's the one who framed Paul. There's obviously the witness who saw a man who resembled Karen's then-boyfriend near a car that looked just like Karen's brother's. And that was roughly 20 minutes before Mary arrived and found the booby trap. In reference to Karen's attitude towards Paul, Martin Yant once wrote, In my 22 years as a journalist and investigator, I don't think I ever met an individual so consumed with such irrational hatred for another and a willingness to say anything, no matter how provably false, to defame him. But it appears that Karen didn't always harbor such ill will towards Paul. She only suspected him after their messy divorce. If you'll remember, at one time, Karen thought the Circleville writer was Mary's co-worker, David Longberry. In 1977, when Karen, Mary, Ron, and Paul all got together to brainstorm who might be behind the letters, Longberry was suspect number one. He had allegedly made a number of uncomfortable advances towards her. Some believe that Longberry sent the first letter to Mary Gillespie in December 1976. They claim Longberry accused Mary of an affair with her school superintendent, Gordon Massey. Maybe Longberry made up Mary's affair with Gordon Massey. Maybe it was real. It does seem suspicious that Mary started to see Massey almost as soon as her husband left the picture. And Ron didn't just leave the picture. He was dead. Even Sheriff Radcliffe suspected foul play at the time. Some theorists suggest that Mary Gillespie might have been the Circleville writer, at least at some point. At the time of Ron's accident, Paul Freshour claims that Mary and Karen were both on their way to Florida, so Mary could secretly meet up with Gordon Massey. Some believe that Mary might have even worked with Karen to later frame Paul. 
that Mary and Karen were black widows who eliminated their husbands to lead the lives they wanted, free from the bonds of marriage. Mary and Karen could have made the road signs themselves to frame Paul and then sent Paul letters in jail to rub the hopelessness of his situation in his face. And if that's the case, maybe Mary was the one who called Ron on the night his pickup truck crashed into a tree. Maybe she confessed to the affair and asked for a divorce. And in a rage, he drank himself into a stupor and wrecked his car. Maybe it was truly a drunken accident and not a murder after all. A rather convenient accident for Mary. But that still wouldn't explain why Ron fired his gun the night he died. It also doesn't explain any of the many letters received by other residents of Pickaway County. The only statement we can confidently make is, if Paul Freshour was the Circleville writer, he wasn't the only one. There's no way he smuggled letters out of solitary confinement in a jail in Lima, Ohio, especially when they were postmarked in Columbus. As for who else was involved, we don't know. Maybe it was different people at different times. To this day, Paul's name hasn't been cleared. If someone ever does prove his innocence, Paul won't be alive to see it. On June 28, 2012, at the age of 70, Paul Freshour, a veteran of the United States Army, passed away at the Mount Carmel Medical Center. The city where he spent his final years? Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Circleville letters, amongst the many sources we used, we found Medium's investigative article, The Poison Pen, Who Wrote the Circleville Letters, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>